Um, I'm going to be reading with you from 1 Peter chapter 5. To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's sufferings, who will also share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be. Not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve. Not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. In the same way, you who are younger, submit yourself to your elders. All of you, clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. Because God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of suffering. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. With the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I have written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you her greetings, and so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. It's good to be with you. Thank you for your support of the seminary. We start classes again uh, tomorrow, so we also would love your prayers as we begin again with the work God calls us to do. It's good to be here. Privileged to lead you in worship this morning as well. I'm going to focus this morning on verses we just read together. I'll read them with you again. And that's 1 Peter 5, verses 8 and 9. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray as we also prepare to hear God's word proclaimed. Father in heaven, you have inspired your word by your spirit. You've also promised your spirit to those who ask. And so this morning as we have opened your word and heard your word, as we also anticipate hearing your word proclaimed, we pray for your spirit. We pray that you would open our hearts to receive it, and that you would grant us encouragement, strength, and that you would be glorified also in the way that we listen. We pray also that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, I wonder this morning if you know the second book on the all-time bestsellers list, the first one being, of course, or maybe not of course, but the Bible. The second one is a book called The Pilgrim's Progress written by John Bunyan some time ago. John Bunyan wrote The Pilgrim's Progress as an allegory of the Christian faith. That is, it tells in story form what it means to be a Christian traveling from what he describes as the city of destruction to the celestial city, the heavenly city in Jerusalem. Well, a few years ago, many of you will know, or perhaps some of you will know, there was an animated version of that, of that book that was released, a movie, 
and it was released around Easter time, and it was being played in uh, Bellingham, Washington, just over the border where we were living at the time. My family was living in Langley, British Columbia. And so I took the family to go watch uh, Pilgrim's Progress on the big screen. Well, our youngest son at the time was uh, about four years old. And I recall thinking as we were watching the movie together uh, that perhaps this was a bad idea. Uh, perhaps he was too young to be watching this movie, and perhaps he was too young especially to be watching it on such a big screen. Because if you've watched the movie, you'll know that it's full of scary things. Very frightening things. There are, there are dragons, there are demons, um, there, are, there are battles to be had. It is, in many respects, a, a very frightening movie. But as I thought about it more, and as we finished the movie together, and as we drove home and, and were talking about it, I, I began to wonder if it wasn't perhaps a good thing that we had been frightened by the movie that morning, that my son, too, whom I desire to follow after Jesus Christ like I do, uh, that he should know that a life spent following after Christ in his footsteps is not an easy life. Jesus tells us, in fact, that uh, those who follow him must take up their crosses. And he tells us to deny ourselves. And what Pilgrim's Progress does is it reminds us that life as a Christian is not an easy one. We're called to spiritual battle, spiritual warfare. Not so that we'd be frightened that that's the end goal, so that we know what to do. We know where to turn. We know where to find encouragement and hope and strength. We need to know, if you've watched the movie or read the book, we need to know what to do when we find ourselves in the swamp of despondency. We need to know what to do, how to resist when we find ourselves being tempted by uh, vanity fair. We need to know what weapons to take up when we're fighting against Apollyon. In short, being a Christian means you need to know what it means to be at war. And the Pilgrim's Progress reminds us of all these things. It's also clear from Jesus' words himself. Jesus taught us, of course, how to pray. Uh, the, the prayer, our Father who art in heaven. And included in the petitions of that prayer was one particular petition, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. That fits very well with Pilgrim's Progress. It fits very well with what we're talking about this morning, spiritual warfare. We need to pray. We need to pray that we are not led into temptation. We need to pray that we are freed, delivered from the evil one. That's what Peter wants to do in our text this morning as well. He wants to open our eyes to the reality that being a Christian is being at war, a spiritual war. He wants to give you hope, to give you encouragement as you make your own journey, as you travel from the city of destruction to the celestial city. He begins like this. We read it earlier. Be alert, he says, he writes. Be alert and of sober mind. And I really wish um, the translations would, would get it right and put an exclamation mark there or maybe three exclamation marks instead of a period. Because what Peter is, is saying to us is he's saying, wake up. He's saying, stop being comfortable and complacent. You need to realize, you need to wake up to the reality that we are in a spiritual warfare. When I was a, a kid growing up, I had an older brother whose responsibility was when he went to bed, we were already in bed, he'd have to come and wake us up so that we would uh, go to the bathroom and, and not have to wait until morning. Anyway, he, he tells us a story how he would sneak very quietly into the room and then he would come to us and grab us by the pajamas and yell in our faces, wake up, you got out of the bathroom. I imagine that's something of what Peter is doing. <laughs> He's not telling you to go to the bathroom this morning, but this is something of what Peter is doing. He, he wants us to wake up. He wants, to, he wants to shake us out of our lethargy. He wants to shake us out of our sleep, sleepfulness, our, our slothfulness. He wants us to realize we are at war. 
And this call is so important and significant for us living in the Western world because too often we don't think of the spiritual warfare that is all around us. When I was a, an intern or a, a, a seminary student at the seminary where I now teach, not too long ago, I got to do a mission internship in Papua New Guinea. If you've ever been to a culture like that, you'll realize that in some places in the world, spiritual warfare is very much in your face. It's very much at the forefront of life. If you would go to a village in Papua New Guinea and you asked somebody where you could find a witch doctor, they could point you to the right house. The, the black magic sanguma, as they call it, is very uh, much in your face. But here in the Western world, spiritual warfare takes a much more subtle turn. Yes, we have witch doctors. We certainly have the occult here in North America. But I suspect that most of you would be unable to tell me where to find the local witch doctor. Here, the devil takes a much less direct approach and his first strategy is to make us think he doesn't exist. His first strategy is, in fact, to make it seem as though to think he exists would be a completely ridiculous and, and absurd idea. Pop culture portrays him as this um, horned figure, red with fiery eyes and a pitchfork, and you just as much believe in him as you would believe in the tooth fairy. Peter doesn't allow us to dismiss him so easily. In fact, Peter reminds us of this reality. He says, you have an enemy. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. The scriptures treat the devil as real from the very beginning. He is real. He is not a laughable red cartoon character. The devil is real. And the way Peter describes him gives us a very vivid picture, doesn't it, of what he's doing, what he's busy with, and how much we ought to, in a sense, respect his power. He describes him as a lion pacing back and forth in a cage. I imagine most of you, that image will resonate. Even though we don't live in that part of the world, you will have gone to a zoo or something like that. Maybe you've driven through the African lion safari. I live close to the Kilman Zoo. You can see lions there. And the idea Peter wants you to have in your mind is that you've been stuck in a cage with a lion that hasn't been fed for some time. A, long, a lion that is just simply hungry to eat something or someone. He says, you as a Christian are by definition living in the cage. It wasn't very difficult, of course, for the people in Peter's day to imagine this scenario. The Romans, one of the favorite punishments for criminals was to, to throw people to the lions. They'd toss them in the middle of the amphitheater and watch as they were torn apart. In fact, it's not long after this letter is written that Christians themselves are being thrown to the lions, ripped to pieces. Well, Peter says, it's not just the people who are thrown into the amphitheater that ought to worry about lions, it's, it's us. We are the ones who are stuck in a cage. The devil is real. The devil is real and he prowls around like a roaring lion. And while he, he's not omnipresent, he can't be everywhere, everywhere at once. He has a host of demons at his beck and call, and he's seeking to destroy the church. Peter says, you have a mortal enemy, an adversary whose sole purpose it is to destroy you. And so we need to remember, we need to wake up this morning and realize that we are in a spiritual war. That's the first thing. But we can't leave it there. Peter gives us another command. After he says, be alert and of sober mind, he gives us this command. He says, resist him. Resist him. We have to resist. We're called to take up our arms, as it were, and fight against the enemy. Well, then, as anybody who's familiar with warfare knows, then you'll need to know his tactics, won't you? How is it that the devil is attacking in this world? How does he prowl? 
How does he devour? Because he doesn't fight in obvious ways. In fact, I think the ways in which I'm going to share this morning that he attacks us aren't the ways that you would first think of when you think of spiritual warfare. He finds where we're vulnerable. He finds where we're weak, and he presses an attack there. He's devious. Sometimes we find ourselves susceptible to his lies. The scripture, in fact, calls him uh, the liar from the beginning. That's what Jesus says. His, his name is Satan. He is the liar from the beginning. He calls him the father of lies. It expresses the reality that when he lies, he speaks his native language. That is, you can't expect anything but lies to come from the mouth of Satan. And his greatest lie for believers is this. God doesn't love you. His greatest lie to believers is to convince us that God doesn't love us. Let me explain that, because that was the great lie from the very beginning of time. Many of you will be familiar with the story of the fall into sin. When the devil came into the garden, where Adam and Eve were living in perfect fellowship with God, and he, God had placed in the middle of the garden a tree that they were not allowed to eat from. And eventually the devil managed to convince them to take from that tree they had become commanded not to eat from, and that's when sin entered into the world. Well, before Adam took from that fruit and Eve took from that fruit, their sin was in believing the lie that Satan had planted in their minds. And the lie was this, God doesn't love you. That is, the reason God has planted this tree in the middle of the garden and said you shouldn't eat from it, the reason he said you shouldn't eat from it isn't because he's trying to keep you safe. It's because he's holding back on you. He's holding out on you. He doesn't want you to experience the kind of happiness that you deserve. He doesn't actually love you. And if we think about the way that we experience things as believers and even as unbelievers, the lie the devil keeps trying to sell to us is this one. He instills doubts in our minds. Does God truly love me? Could God truly love me? If he really does, then why have I experienced this? If he really does, then why am I currently experiencing that? Why haven't I received this? Why have I received that? He capitalizes on our trials, on our tragedies. This life is full of suffering, and he uses those to implant in our minds this this thought. God doesn't love me. If he loved me, he wouldn't give me this. If he loved me, he wouldn't give me that. He's a liar. The devil is a liar. Every word that comes from his mouth is a liar. God has given us the truth. We live in a world which is searching for the truth. We are so often searching for the truth. We have the word of God. In a world of lies, we have the word of God which speaks to us the truth that we need. And so what we do to the devil when he seeks to plant this lie in our hearts is we take the word of God and we answer him with truth. The devil says, God doesn't love you. And I tell him, well, I know Romans chapter 8. And in Romans chapter 8, God says to me that nothing can separate me from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And then Paul gives us this wonderful list to hammer the point home. Life, death, angels, demons, um, nakedness, sword, nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so we, we answer the lies with the word of God. We take the word of truth and we speak truth to the devil's face. That's how you resist the liar from the beginning. That's not the only thing that the devil does. At other times, he plagues us with guilt. Scripture has another name for him, the accuser. In fact, Satan means accuser. 
That's what the word adversary or enemy in our text means as well. It means the accuser. If you're familiar with Scripture, you may recall in the Old Testament there's this story in Zechariah's prophecy. It's a, it's a heavenly vision of the, the high priest Joshua who's standing in the presence of God. And he's wearing these filthy robes. He's completely dirty in the presence of God. And Satan is at hand. Satan is standing there, and Satan's sole mission in that moment is to accuse. He stands there and he points the finger at Joshua and he says to him, look at you. You are filthy. How can you dare to stand in the presence of God wearing such filthy robes? That's the reality of what the devil does to us when he reminds us of our guilt. He holds before our eyes our sins and he says, look at you. How dare you come into the presence of God? How dare you think that you can come into the presence of God with your sin? That's one of the accusations he brings to us, the guilt he inflicts us with. Imagine some of the kids here, maybe with your parents, have watched a movie, The BFG. The BFG. Hopefully you've read the book as well. You should always read the book first uh, before you watch the movie. It's about a big friendly giant, BFG, the big friendly giant. And this big friendly giant is different than all the other giants. The other giants uh, make it a business of eating people. That's their diet. Their diet is to go out on raids and to, to eat people. The big friendly giant hates that. Uh, he himself is, is much different. He has this ability to give people dreams and nightmares. That's his job. Well, at the very end of the, of the movie, he's going to give these man-eating giants with him the worst nightmare he could possibly come up with, and he does. This is the worst nightmare the BFG can think of. Look what you've done. There can be no forgiveness. Look what you've done. There can be no forgiveness. Is not that the greatest nightmare we can imagine? That is, for someone to know everything that we've ever done and for there to be no possibility of forgiveness. That's the nightmare that the devil seeks to instill in our hearts and minds when he afflicts us with guilt. He reminds us of this sin and that one. He fills our minds with sins of the past. He says, God can't possibly forgive this. God can't possibly forgive that. It's been too many times. It's too horrible. There can be no forgiveness. He wants us to live with a perpetually guilty conscience with an overwhelming sense of de despair and dread. He saps our joy in Christ, and he takes away our confidence before God. Perhaps you're here this morning, and you know the promises of God. You know the, the forgiveness that is offered in Christ Jesus. You know these things, but you can't possibly believe that it could be for you. The devil has afflicted you with an overwhelming sense of dread and despair because of the guilt of your sins. Well, you have believed a lie. The truth of God's word is this. Let me return to Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That is, you can trust that when you have come to Christ, you have believed on him as your Savior, that your sins are forgiven, completely forgiven. That is, they've been thrown into a sea without bottom or shore. That's the reality of what Christ tells us. That's the reality of what Christ has done for us. And if we go back to that beautiful picture, or wasn't it beautiful yet, but Joshua in the presence of God, the devil accusing him of his filthy robes, what happens next? 
Well, God, rather than acknowledging the accusations which were rightful and just and true, instead of acknowledging them, God says, take off those filthy robes, replace them with pure white robes. And he stands there in the presence of God, Joshua does, robed in the righteousness of Christ. That's the reality of the gospel. That's the truth of what God teaches us. When we are afflicted with guilt, when we are afflicted with doubt, when we are tempted to despair, what do we do? We're going to sing it later. Upward I look and see him there. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of my guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because my sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. Because God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. The devil accuses. God declares there is no condemnation. When the devil fills you with a sense of guilt, you need to look up. You need to look up and you need to see Jesus. You need to see that every sin that you have brought to the foot of the cross is truly forgiven. Every sin that you have committed, if you are in Christ Jesus is absolutely forgiven. Perhaps we know the devil best as the tempter. That's the way pop culture also presents him as this little guy who stands on your shoulder and tempts you to do bad things. But we know from Scripture that it's real. His temptation is real. In fact, uh, the devil even tried to tempt Jesus in the desert. He's perfectly capable of adapting his temptation to suit our particular weaknesses. He is devious and subtle. He knows where you're susceptible, and that's where he will press his attack. And so I would encourage you this morning, as we think about resist the devil, to know where it is that we are weak. Know what it is that tempts you. Know when it is that you are particularly tempted, when you're tired, when you're alone, when you're sad. Jesus commands us to be radical when it comes to sin in our life. You may know the scripture passage of the Sermon on the Mount. When Jesus makes this strong, strong call to to believers, he says, "If, if your hand is causing you to sin, cut it off. And if your eye is causing you to sin, then pluck it out. Well, we could say much the same thing with regard to temptation. If there is something in your life that is causing you to sin, that is tempting you away from Christ, then you need to root it out. You need to get rid of it. The well-known pastor, John Piper, once explained, I forget exactly what context it was, but he explained how when they go on holidays with his wife, he tends to go to the mountains as opposed to the beach. And the only reason that is, is because he wants to avoid temptation. He wants to avoid filling his mind and heart with things that would cause him to depart from Christ, to hunger less after the grace of God. That's just one example I want you to consider this morning for yourself what it is that that tempts you to to wander from Christ that leads you away from him. Let me give you another example. How about social media? How tempting is social media? And I'm not talking here about the world of of pornography and whatnot, which of course is a great temptation as well. But I'm thinking more in terms of the the more innocuous temptations. That is, that it's a place where Christian virtue is so often completely abandoned. Perhaps this is the place the devil has been the most busy the past year and a half, destroying our relationships, undermining the unity that we have in Christ by our actions and our attitudes online. The devil, you could say, is prowling around on the internet in every place. And so I want to encourage you. Let me give you a practical strategy 
The next time you log into Facebook or Instagram or MeWe or whatever it is that you're on, pray this prayer first. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. It's time to start praying that petition more and more fervently. Are we willing to take seriously the reality that there is much in this world that is seeking to draw us away from Christ? There is much in this world that the devil is using to draw us away from Christ. Temptations to lust, temptations to anger, temptations to impatience, temptations just to fill our minds and hearts with all sorts of useless and trivial things. And so Peter says to us this morning, be alert and of sober mind. He grabs us by the lapels and he says, wake up. Wake up. The worst thing we can do is is ignore the reality that we are at spiritual war. Let me give you a ridiculous scenario to help underline this point. I'm a bit of a a history buff. Um, These World War I movies where they're fighting in the trenches, you know, at a certain point they, they go over the top. They go over the trenches Put that image in your mind. So the soldiers have been hunkered down in the trenches. Now they're going to go over the top and face the enemy. And the bullets are whizzing overhead, and the shells are whizzing overhead and and crashing behind them. It is a dangerous place to be. But the one soldier, as he goes over the top, is thinking to himself, you know, I've had a late night last night, a lot of sleepless nights over the past while. I'm really tired. I think I'm going to take a nap here on the battlefield, and then I'll keep going. That's what a Christian is doing who doesn't, fight these spiritual battles, whose mind and heart isn't open to the reality that the devil is prowling around like a roaring lion. Or take Peter's image. I said earlier, I live close to the Kilman Zoo. Um, Sometimes we go along the pathway, the rail trail goes right alongside the Kilman Zoo, and you can hear the lions roaring there. It's quite quite something. If I get an emergency alert on my phone saying, well, one of the lions has escaped from the Kilman Zoo, I'm not going to take my family on that walk that day. We're going to lock the doors and stay inside. The reality is that we are in a spiritual warfare. The reality is that we are in a spiritual battle for our souls and we have a mortal enemy. And so we need to be sober-minded, we need to be watchful, we need to resist. But I don't want to give you the impression this morning that resistance is all about get rid of temptations, um, address uh, triggers, get yourself accountability partners, all the good things that we do uh, to avoid temptation. Those things are good and important, but there's something more ultimate at the heart of our resistance. I want to take you there with a story, a story about the word resist in French, resister. It takes place in France. The Tower of Constance is a a prison, a stone prison. And in the early 1700s, a a young woman was imprisoned there. She was 15 years old. Marie Durand was her name. She was imprisoned for her faith. She refused to recant her faith. She refused to compromise her convictions. 38 years Marie Durand spent in that prison. It was a prison that was so dark that people went blind after a period of time staying in that prison. She spent her 38 years there until she was 53 years old ministering to the other women. How did she resist? She scratched the word resister into the floor of that stone cell. Resister. She was standing firm. The question is, how Did she stand firm? How could she resist? She was firm in her faith. Peter says, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion. Resist him standing firm in the faith. What Marie Durand had in that prison cell was far better and far greater than anything the outside world could offer her. She had her Savior, Jesus Christ. 
You see, that was it. She could give up Christ and gain the world, but she would have lost her soul. She was firm in faith. How can we resist? Think, think of your brothers and sisters in, in countries like Afghanistan, in China, in Pakistan, in, in Nigeria, these countries where, where to profess faith in Christ could be a death penalty. How can they resist giving up? How can we resist in this world, perhaps with much different temptations, the temptation of materialism, the temptation to simply orient our lives around meaningless and trivial things? This is the heart of it. Peter says, firm in faith. You see, more than anything, what Satan wants to do is he wants to destroy your relationship with Jesus Christ. He wants to create a separation between you and the Savior who loves you. Peter himself knew temptation. You may recall a story, a true story, of course, what happened just before Jesus was crucified in the Garden of Gethsemane. And Jesus took some disciples to go pray in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he told Peter, he told Peter, you are going to deny me three times. Peter would deny Jesus three times. And then Jesus said this to Peter. He said, Simon, Simon, that was his other name. Indeed, Satan has asked for you that he might sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. Our faith cannot fail. Peter's faith cannot fail. Where we need to stand firm is in our faith. How do we do that? Well, not by looking at ourselves, not by looking internally, not by weighing whether or not our faith is strong enough. We do so by looking outside of ourselves at the object of our faith. You see, the only hope of Peter in that moment was Jesus, the prayers of Jesus, the love of Jesus, the power of Jesus. Your hope is only Jesus. You see, in and of ourselves, we are not prepared to fight these spiritual battles. You are not strong enough. Do you really imagine that you could stand up against the power of the devil, this roaring lion who's seeking someone to devour? We don't have the skills. We don't have the power. We don't have the strength. We aren't as strong as we think. Our experiences bear that out. We need to rest and rely on Christ by faith. We need to seek our strength in Christ and not in ourselves. You see, through Christ we have access to his infinite power, his infinite strength. Resist the devil, Peter says, yet not I, but through Christ in me. You're com completely foolish if you think you can't do it. If you can, or sorry, that you can do it without clinging to Christ, going to Christ, trusting in Christ, loving in Christ. We need to know that when we are weak, he is strong. And in fact, when we are at our weakest and most dependent upon him, that that's exactly the best place we could possibly be. And so we need to cling to Christ. That's what resistance has, all, it all has to do with Christ, our relationship with Christ. Grow in your love for Christ. Grow in your dependence on Christ. Grow in your devotion to him, and you will grow in your ability to resist the devil. But maybe as I say these things, you're wondering, well, how do I do that? It's easy to say, isn't it? But how do I do that? Well, it's not rocket science. I got kids at home, three, three boys God has blessed us with. A new one this past summer, after seven years of waiting, God is good. Where was I going? We sing songs together. And we sing one song, read your Bible, 
pray every day? And that's the answer. How do you grow in your love for Christ? How do you grow in your knowledge of Christ? You read your word. You read his word. You see, this is where you encounter the living and ascended Christ. This is where you encounter Jesus. This is where you learn to love him more. It's where you learn the glorious truths of the gospel that fortify your hearts against the lies of the devil and his accusations. The word of God is your greatest weapon in your fight against the devil. What did Jesus do when the devil came to tempt him in the desert? He answered him with the words of Scripture. He had them on his heart and in his mind. Luther, who knew the devil's attacks more than anyone, he threw an ink pot at the devil, in fact. Luther said this, he said, Satan hates the word of God more than anything. We want to resist the devil. Well, how about taking the thing that he hates and loving it? And how about taking the thing that he hates and planting it deep in your hearts? How important is the word of God to you? Do you delight in the Word of God? Are you spending time in the Word of God? If I were to take away your Bibles and your smartphones, you had no access to the Word of God, how much of it is in your heart? How much of it is in your heart so that in the moment of temptation, in the moment of, of guilt, you can speak the truth of God's Word to the lies that you're being fed? Can you preach the gospel to your heart? Can you calm your worries, your doubts, your fears with the unshakable promises of God's word. When the devil tells you God doesn't love you, can you answer him with the truth of God's word? And you fight your temptations by the power of the word of God. But that's not all. I said, read your Bible, pray every day. Those two things go hand in hand. Spiritual warfare is all about prayer. The Apostle Paul, of course, writes that famous passage about the armor of God and describes all the pieces of armor, but he ends in a very particular way. He ends this way. He says, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. He says, at the bottom line, what we need to be doing is praying constantly and consistently. In fact, if we think about Peter's example, Peter denied Jesus. What was he doing in the garden when Jesus was praying? He was sleeping. He failed to pray. If we are to resist the devil, we will need to be constantly and consistently prayerful. We need to pray that we're kept from temptation. And then pray when the temptation comes that we're able to resist. And pray that God answers our doubts, our uncertainties, our worries, our fears with the truth of his word. Pray that he would calm our troubled hearts. Pray that he would fix our gaze upon Christ. Pray that we would rest and rely on the power of the Spirit and not in our own strength. That's how you resist the devil. That's how you stand firm in faith. You keep your eyes on Christ and you pray. The great hymn writer William Cowper said, I think it may be in one of his hymns, Satan trembles when he sees the weakest saints, saint upon his knees. Satan trembles when he sees the weakest saint upon his knees. Isn't that wonderful? You want Satan to tremble? Get on your knees and pray. If I can be so bold as to correct the great hymn writer, William Cowper, I would put it differently. He should have said, Satan trembles when he sees the weakest saints upon their knees. We're not alone in this fight. The last part of our scripture passage here is this. He says, resist him standing firm in the faith. Why? Because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. You are not alone. Isn't that one of the lies the devil tries to tell us from time to time? 
You are the only one struggling with this sin. You are the only one who has fallen again and again and again. He lies. Peter says, know that the devil is attacking all your brothers and sisters, the whole family of God, and he means it as an encouragement. You are not alone in your struggle. God has given us to each other as well as brothers and sisters. The beautiful phrase here, the family of believers, the family of God. So don't fight alone. We are one in Christ, the same family, also in the same army. I'm in the Lord's army. Yes, sir. And you are too. And so we fight together. We fight together. We fight alongside each other. We stand firm together. I told you earlier, I'm a bit of a history buff. I'm really an ancient historian. Um, in the, ancient history, the time of ancient history, when you fought in battle formation, you held a shield. The interesting thing is the shield wasn't there for you. It was for the person beside you. You protected the person beside you with a shield. I want to say that's part of what Peter is doing here. He's saying we need to learn also to protect each other and to stand firm together. We need to speak the word of God to each other. We need to pray for each other and with each other. We need to do these things together and be open with each other about where it is that God is, that, that sorry, the devil is particularly attacking you. Where are you vulnerable? Does anybody know where, where you're vulnerable? Have you shared these things with others? Let's fight together. But let me end with this. I don't want you to forget the end of the story. There's a spoiler alert. Jesus wins. Jesus wins. In fact, in fact, Jesus has won. Jesus won the victory over the devil in his whole dominion at the cross and through his resurrection. And Jesus has ascended into heaven and he sits at the Father's right hand and he has all power in heaven and on earth and under the earth. The devil's time is short. His doom is absolutely certain. You see, there's another lion, the lion of the tribe of Judah. That's Jesus. Jesus has won the victory we're going to sing it at the very end of the service as well. Ultimately, this is our hope. He will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold. If it was up to you, if I were to send you out into the world now and say, hey, go out there and resist the devil. Do your best. Read your Bible more. Pray more consistently and more constantly. It would be a failed enterprise. But Christ will hold us fast. Take heart. He has overcome the world. Amen. Let's come to God in prayer. Our Father in heaven, the reality that we have an adversary as powerful as the devil, Satan, prowling around like a lion, is frightening. But just as frightening as the reality that so often we are asleep, comfortable, and complacent. We pray that you would use your word and spirit this morning to wake us up. Wake us up by the power of your spirit and give us the strength that we need to resist the devil's lies, to answer our doubts and our worries and our fears, and to withstand our temptations. We pray that you would help us to find our confidence not in ourselves, but in Christ, in the finished work of Jesus Christ, our perfect sacrifice for sins, and our perfect righteousness. Help us to realize that our hope is not in me, but in Christ in me. Give us a hunger for your word. Give us a deep desire to come to you in humble and dependent prayer. So fill our hearts with the truths and the glorious 
riches of your word, the promises of the gospel, so that we're equipped to fight against the schemes of the devil. And finally, we praise you. We praise you for the wonder of the gospel. We praise you for the triumphant message. We praise you for the glorious victory of Jesus Christ over our sin, over death, the devil and his whole dominion through his crucifixion and resurrection. And we praise you that he has ascended into heaven, that he has all power in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that he is exercising that power for our benefit. All glory and honor be to him alone. Amen.